The UFC light heavyweight division has featured some of the all-time greatest names in the sport. Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture, Tito Ortiz, Vitor Belfort, Vanderlei Silva, Rampage Jackson, Rashad Evans, Forrest Griffin, Shogun, John Jones, Gustafson. There are just way too many to name. But of course there is now Daniel Cormier defending his title in a couple of days against burgeoning knockout talent Vulcan Ozdemir. And the history here is rich. When you try and trace the lineal paths, you find that it spans over more than two decades and has crossed over four different divisions. You're probably wondering how that could be, but there are a few different ways of looking at this that we'll get to explore in two separate videos leading up to UFC 220. Unlike the first part of this series where I discussed the first heavyweight champion's journey from a lineal perspective, the light heavyweights championship road from Frank Shamrock in 1997 to either Daniel Cormier or Vulcan Ozdemir, which is yet to happen at the time of this recording, doesn't exactly add up. So that's where the different perspectives come in. On this first video, we'll start with the history of the UFC belt, and then we'll trace the lineal journey all the way from the beginning, which is a bit of a mess, in tomorrow's video. I'm Jason from MMA on Point, and this is called Part 1, The History of the UFC Light Heavyweight Belt. Chapter 1, The First Champion. For the sake of context, we'll start with the most straightforward bit of the light heavyweight division's history. Who won the belt first in the UFC, and then just follow where it changes hands within the organization. As you may know, there were no weight divisions when the UFC first began, just one night tournaments with a single hand raise at the end of the night. It didn't matter what you weighed, everyone just fought whoever and they were matched up regardless of size. So fast forward to UFC 12 and two weight classes were established heavyweight and lightweight. Now lightweight's division is formed by today's standards because lightweight didn't mean 155 pounds like it does today, but rather just a simple designation of under 200 pounds. And so the inverse was heavyweight with 200 pounds or more. It quickly became apparent though that this wasn't enough of a separation. So just a couple events later at UFC 14, lightweight's classification was renamed to middleweight, and at UFC 16 a revised version of lightweight was introduced meaning 170 pounds and under. It's important to understand that as we move forward because these terms are all a bit crossed in the beginning. So remember lightweight at this time meant 200 pounds or less. The first then lightweight tournament champion at UFC 12 was Jerry Bolander, a Lions Den team member that was headed up by Ken Shamrock which was the first big training group outside of the Gracies. On the very next card though at UFC 14, Bolander was absent, so as one night tournaments went, there was no true defending champion. You either won or lost on that night and that was it. So this allowed Kevin Jackson, a 1992 Olympic gold medalist in freestyle wrestling at the Barcelona Games, to win the then renamed middleweight tournament. So then Kevin Jackson fought Frank Shamrock, Ken Shamrock's adopted little brother who is a Pancrase veteran that had good enough credentials for his debut fight in the UFC to be for the middleweight belt, the very first belt in that division. But it was over really quickly as Jackson lost by armbar in just 16 seconds into the first round at UFC Japan. Chapter 2, The Huntington Beach Bad Boy Unlike the UFC's heavyweight belt, with Frank Shamrock, middleweight enjoyed a great deal of stability at this time. Shamrock easily defended it three times until he fought what would be his greatest test as champion against a very young and hungry Tito Ortiz. It was at the time to be considered the greatest fight in UFC history and is still one of the very best the sport in general has ever seen. Frank Shamrock ended up stopping Tito nearly five minutes into the fourth round and as a result he was held as the best in UFC history. But to everyone's surprise, he immediately retired citing a lack of competition, but really he was just taking advantage of a contract loophole so he could vacate the title and leave the fight elsewhere, leaving the belt up in the UFC for grabs. 
So now that the belt was up for grabs, naturally Tito Ortiz was a logical person to fight for the title as the clear second best fighter in the division. Who he would fight for the title though in a fight that is often forgotten about was actually none other than the then Pride standout coming off of a six fight win streak. Vanderlei Silva. At that time, Pride didn't have a middleweight belt. But it's interesting that so many people seem to forget about this because it was a dream fight on paper considering what both would accomplish. But unfortunately, many people don't talk about it for good reason because it really wasn't that entertaining. Tito pretty much out-wrestled Vanderlei through five rounds to win his first title by decision. This was just the start of Tito's record-breaking streak of five defenses that stood all the way until John Jones would eventually break it over a decade later. Tito's wins came against well-known fighters like the aforementioned Vanderlei, Evan Tanner, and Ken Shamrock, among others. It was also during his title reign that the middleweight division realigned to 205 pounds at UFC 32 and was renamed the light heavyweight division to make room for the newly formed middleweight division, or 185 pounds, starting at UFC 33. But it was also during this time when the belt would fall into controversy as Chuck Liddell became the number one contender for the belt after winning against Vitor Belfort at UFC 37.5. And yeah, the numbering is a bit weird because it was actually the UFC's first fight on a Fox network and the first fight ever to be shown on cable TV in the US. Also notable is that this was Joe Rogan's return to the UFC with his first event as color commentator instead of interviewing fighters like he did in years prior. But regardless, after this event, Chuck earned the number one contender spot to fight Tito. Since the two were training partners, Tito refused to fight Chuck, citing friendship and money being his biggest factor for not taking the fight. Chuck, on the other hand, was all too happy to take the fight and claims to this day that Tito was afraid to fight him because of their experiences in training, or is alleged that Tito would get knocked out. Dana, as president of the UFC, who used to manage both of the fighters before Zufa bought the company, also claims that Tito was afraid of Chuck. Take all that for what you will. As a result of this, Tito was essentially sidelined and Chuck was scheduled to face the former UFC heavyweight champion Randy Couture for the interim title. But sure enough, Randy Couture, being the incredible talent he was, upset the younger fighter who was favored to win by dominating him with wrestling and even getting a TKO stoppage with ground and pound in round three. And he would shock the world again when Randy out-wrestled the returning Tito Ortiz at UFC 44 to unify the title. Part 3, The Liddell Era So this was definitely the proverbial hot potato stage of the division as Couture oddly lost his next fight via eyelid cut just seconds into round 1. It was a bit of a freak accident that couldn't have been remedied considering it basically blinded Couture in one eye. So Vitor was awarded the title, just like that he was champ. So naturally the two fought again at the next pay-per-view, UFC 49, where Couture was able to best Vitor in their third fight where it was ruled that Belfort could not continue, a TKO stoppage by the doctor. In between all of this, Chuck and Tito finally clashed despite neither holding the belt as both were coming off of losses to Couture and Chuck with Ram page and pride. But despite this, it was a gigantic fight at the time with a hugely satisfying result where Chuck stopped Tito with a barrage of punches early in round two. It was the UFC's best-selling pay-per-view ever with an estimated 105,000 buys at the time. And so with Couture as champion again and Tito Liddell finally behind us, Couture was on to rematching Liddell again. Dominating the first fight, Couture was expected to give the kickboxer a lot of problems again as he'd just beaten the three best light heavyweights in the division, Liddell, Tito, and Belfort all back-to-back. -back. And this was a truly legendary run for the well-aged champion who was already 40 years of age by this point. But Liddell was all too prepared this time around for Couture's tactics and earned a knockout at 2.06 in round one. 
This incredible turn of events with so many fan favorites at the top of the division represented the division's maturation as talent levels reached an all-time high. It was also the aftermath of the Ultimate Fighter's first season. Unlike today, that show used to be massive because it brought a ton of new eyes being on free TV, and the surge was noticeably high because nearly three times as many people paid to see Chuck rematch Randy on pay-per-view versus the Chuck versus Tito fight with an outstanding 280,000 total buys. By far the biggest numbers in pay-per-view history for any MMA promotion at that point. Chuck was already incredibly popular in the promotion, but this amended him as the sport's top star. It only grew from here over the next two years. Chuck was seemingly unstoppable, knocking out Jeremy Horn, Randy Couture again in their third fight, Bob Luce Brawl, and the big one with over one million people buying the rematch of Tito Ortiz versus Chuck Liddell number two. Absolutely shattering anything before it. Chuck was the undisputed king. Chapter 4, The Pride Invasion It had always been wondered through Pride's inception in 1997 all the way through 2007 what would happen if the best of Pride fought the best of the UFC. For the most part, it was a total mystery, but one UFC fighter did manage to bridge the gap while they were both around, and that was Chuck Liddell. And to be clear, he did it as a UFC fighter, not just once, but twice. The first fight went well against Guy Mesger in 2001 with a knockout, and then again in his second fight for the Pride Middleweight Tournament against a young Aleister Overeem. He knocked him out as well. This meant the dream fight with Vanderlei Silva and Chuck would finally happen, but one opponent always seemed to have his number. Quentin Rampage Jackson. Chuck was seen as a bit of a favorite, and the Vanderlei fight felt all but eminent at this point. Sure enough, though, Rampage dominated the fight to such an extent that the corner had to throw in the towel to stop it from getting any worse. It was chalked up to a deviation from the game plan where Chuck was supposed to employ an array of leg kicks, according to Dana White, who was guest commentating the fight. It's amazing to see this many people in one place at the same time. The times have really changed, haven't they? After this, though, Chuck went on to his incredible seven-fight win streak, winning the light heavyweight title and clearing out the division for the next three years, all of them by KO or TKO. At the same time, though, Pride had just been purchased by the UFC and many of its best fighters were brought over as well as a little-known organization called the World Fighting Alliance, or WFA. So fighters like Vanderlei, Shogun, and Dan Henderson were brought over from Pride and Rampage from WFA. WFA was purchased just before Pride, so Rampage was the first to appear in the UFC and was quickly matched with Liddell after knocking out Marvin Eastman at UFC 67. With Chuck looking unstoppable, it was thought he might avenge his loss from four years earlier in Pride to Rampage, but history would indeed repeat itself as this time it was even more definitive. Chuck was knocked out cold in under two minutes of the very first round. Chapter 5 A Young New Champion after the shocking defeat of Chuck Liddell, Rampage was on top of the sport, and he'd even defeated the last Pride champion shortly after, a man who knocked out Vanderlei Silva just before the company folded at Pride 33, Dan Henderson. Meanwhile, a huge upset had just occurred. Force Griffin had just choked out the last man to beat Rampage Jackson in Pride, Mauricio Shogun Hua. So in an unlikely turn of events, Forrest Griffin was the new challenger for the 205 pound title. And yet again with another upset, Forrest Griffin managed to beat Rampage by essentially attacking his biggest weakness, leg kicks. 
Suddenly, Forrest Griffin was the UFC champion by decision. So in an event that made the Ultimate Fighter look like the most appropriately titled show, Season 1's winner Forrest Griffin versus Season 2's winner Rashad Evans was matched up for the UFC Undisputed Light Heavyweight title. This would be short-lived though as Rashad Evans would win the title and immediately drop it to Lyoto Machida by knockout. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Machida era. Who after a controversial split decision defense against Shogun was rematched again for the title when Shogun would knock out the notoriously elusive champion in the first round. At last, Shogun had realized his potential as the UFC champion everyone thought he could be despite losing to Griffin in his debut. But there was a man quickly rising up through the ranks that was undeniable. Controversial for many reasons today, John Jones. And he beat Shogun with ease, dominating every second of the fight until a battered Shogun eventually tapped to strikes in round three. And this was just the beginning of a legendary win streak. He then fought Quentin Rampage Jackson, Leota Machida, Rashad Evans, Vitor Belfort, Chel Sonnen, Alexander Gustafson, Glover Teixeira, and then of course, Daniel Cormier. And he dominated nearly every fight except for the Alexander Gustafson fight. One of the best fights in UFC history, and one we'll likely never see a rematch of. But it was also during this time that Jones began to unravel, with two DUIs, a hit and run of a pregnant woman, a drag racing stunt, and what could be the end of his career, two failed drug tests with one directly after Jones' comeback at UFC 214, where his second win against Cormier was overturned and the title was actually given back to Cormier. As a result, the UFC light heavyweight title had been plunged into controversy. It's important to note though that with recent new information, I think it's necessary that we as fans exercise a bit of caution here. It's been voiced a lot that John Jones is a steroid-taking cheater, but it does appear that there might be some truth to his claims that it's a tainted supplement, just like the first time. Don't take my word for it though, here's the man who heads up the UFC's end of facilitating drug tests with USADA. Jeff Novitsky. And the positive test was for dehydrochloromethyltestosterone or oral terinobol. Would not make a lot of sense that that would be your drug of choice if you were intentionally trying to cheat. Certainly on the surface of things I have said, you know, at this point in the game with that type of information out there, um, it, it wouldn't indicate intentional use. You know, this is obviously John's second time. Um, in the program with testing positive and, and the first time they said definitively in that case was John there was no evidence that John intentionally cheated however he operated with careless reckless disregard there was reported to be a Cialis um, pill this is as legit a source as you can get I don't care if you like or hate John Jones and he has done some horrible things but none of that matters in terms of whether or not he intentionally cheated and as a result can continue to fight in MMA. Only the evidence does. Negligence is still his fault so he's still at fault here but it's miles apart from cheating with an intent and the punishment he receives will likely reflect how valid his claims are. Could be the difference between one year and several. All that aside though, since Jones' original suspension from the UFC, Daniel Cormier has amassed an incredible streak of wins against guys like Anthony Johnson, twice, Alexander Gustafson, Anderson Silva, and after that horrific TKO damage he did suffer from Jones, illegal or not is something he does suffer the real consequences of this late in the game. So the question is, much like Stipe Miocic is against a terrifying knockout artist in Nganu, Cormier is in a similar situation against another knockout artist in Vulcan Ozdemir, who stopped his last two opponents in under one minute of the first round. 
Can Cormier do like he did with another knockout artist, Anthony Rumble Johnson, do the same to Vulcan Ozdemir? This is an incredible matchup that will be the first steps rebuilding after the controversy of Jones and will be the chance to show either fighter is the best the division currently has. Hey, what's up, everybody? I hope you enjoyed that video. The question I want to ask you right off the bat is who do you think will win this fight, Ozdemir or Cormier? Um, it'll be interesting. We've seen Cormier in matchups like this before where he's fought big knockout artists. So will it be the same story as like an Anthony Rumble Johnson or will Ozdemir do another upset like he has been over the past year and manage to beat Cormier? So super interesting. I think both these title fights are really compelling on their own. Uh, but really curious to get your guys' thoughts about that. And uh, apologies if I sound a little weird uh, today. I'm going through a bit of a cold, uh, so I sound probably a little bit more nasally than normal, but no big deal. But um, I appreciate you guys watching. Um, we will see you tomorrow with the next video in this series, which will be following the lineal path. So that's super exciting. That one's really crazy. It goes all over the place. So I uh, look forward to that one. And uh, I guess in the time being, I uh, hope you guys have a great day, and we'll see you in the next video.